So my title for today, Too Stressed to Rest. Too Stressed to Rest. Anyone too stressed to rest? Just me then. Oh, a few, few honest people around. London life, so easy to be too, too stressed to rest. I'm um, taking that sermon title from the, the passage context that we looked at last time I was here with you at the 2.30, Matthew 12, verses 1 through 6. We looked at the idea of God on the margins and how we can, in life, try to put God into the margins and God belonging right at the center of our lives. And uh, I was discussing the message with Colin afterwards, our senior leader, and he was just so, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting point, the, the paradox that the more time we spend with God at the center, the more time we have for all the things that matter, not the less time. And sometimes we feel that there's this exchange that happens. The more time we spend with God, the left, less time we have available to do anything else. We have deeper, more lasting, more fruitful impact when we live out of the presence of God and seek to establish his kingdom. But there were some verses in there which really caught my attention and I wanted to revisit them with us today. So I'm going to start by reading a section out of Matthew 9 and then come back to Matthew 12. And it's going to be quite a chunk of scripture, but it's important to read the whole section to give us a, a flavor. As Jesus passed on from there, Matthew 9 verse 9, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Right at the beginning there, you see that it's Matthew that gets called. He's sitting at a tax booth and he gets called to become a disciple of Jesus. He's later the one who writes his gospel. And he includes the first bit of teaching that he hears from Jesus given to these Pharisees. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He suggested to them that they needed to go and find out what it meant. And then in Matthew 12, verse 1 through 6, we see another story of the Pharisees now observing Jesus and his disciples walking through a field, and they start to gather up the grain and rub the grain and make it into something edible and then chew on the seeds. They were doing this on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, if you had known what this means, here's the phrase again, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going to come back to those two phrases, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. But let me continue on from verse 8. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. 
This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. I want to unpack with you today three main ideas. The lesson, the rest, the fruit. The lesson, mercy, not sacrifice. The rest, the revelation of who Jesus is as Lord, and the fruit, a ministry of healing and restoration and God's glory. So the lesson. I love the fact that Jesus is able to identify with the Pharisees an entire stream of teaching that they hadn't even begun to consider. I mean, these Pharisees were concerned in life to identify every single aspect of the law and how they were to fulfill the law in order to be able to say that they were righteous. And so it was their business, it was of necessity that they discover God's law and then encode it into their daily practice. And yet Jesus, having observed them, is able to make this claim, you need to go and learn something. If I were to sit down with a university professor or if you were to sit down with the smartest person you know, you know, you know what it's like when you feel like you can't tell them anything. They already know everything. I mean, my brother will love me for saying this, but he's in the middle of his PhD. He's got two masters, one from Princeton, one from Oxford. He's got a first-class degree from Oxford, all that kind of stuff. Long list of things. Winner of University Challenge back in 2008 or something. So big brain, right? You can't tell him anything. Sorry, bro. <clears throat> but you know, when you sit down with people, you can't tell them anything. Jesus is sitting down with Pharisees And there's a whole gap in their knowledge, a whole gap in their knowledge about what it is to be merciful and not sacrificial. And hidden in this lesson, six words, there is a revelation. And there's a revelation for every single one of us today, a revelation of why Jesus is the way that he is. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus would say to them, uh, you need to go and learn this and then expect them to have learnt it. He says to them something that is perhaps so profound that you could spend your entire life looking into it. We don't know quite how long the gap is between the initial call, uh, initial teaching, and the time when he's holding them to account. It could be anything up to three years. But he was expecting them to have learnt what it was to be merciful, not sacrificial. How did he expect this to happen? Well, I mean, these Pharisees, as I touched on last time, were obsessed with watching Jesus. Maybe they were spending so much time watching Christ that he expected them to come to understand the motivation that was governing all of his ministry. But we also see other examples. Remember the rich young ruler. He said to him, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. He actually believed in the saying that it was something that the guy could achieve in the same way that he believed that the Pharisees could achieve the learning of this lesson. But how? Both were so impossible that it was designed to push them to the limit where they recognized, I can't do this in my own strength. He pushed them to the limit of knowing that there was another world, a world governed by God, and that they would need to trust God. 
They will need to step out of their own ability, their own capacity, and learn to trust God in order to catch the revelation. And this is the issue at the core of the whole kingdom of God, that there is a way that God lives in heaven that he wants to manifest here on the earth. It is not obvious to us, except that we participate in it by the power of the Spirit of God, i.e. he reveals it through us. And my prayer today is that something would happen for you and for me where we'd say, you know what, God, to really live this Christian life, I need to rely on you totally, increasingly. Day by day, my desire to rely on you needs to grow. And I've said this before, I'll reiterate it for you again. There's no point in, there's no context for the Christian where we'll grow so mature in our faith that we no longer need the Father. Actually, the more mature we grow in our faith, the more we will need God. The more we grow to become like Christ, the more we will need to say, I only do that which I see my Father doing. It's not the journey of the world where you grow old and then gain your independence. You move out from your parents' house, you go start to make your own money, you start to make your own decisions. The journey of the Christian is greater dependence on the Lord. And what's the end goal? He says this to them, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you'd learned this, you'd know what it means uh, not to condemn the guiltless. And then immediately, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. When we start to learn the lessons that Jesus puts before us, we're going to come to a place where we more fully understand Christ for who he really is in all of his glory. Now, at the moment, I am conscious that maybe you're wondering what I'm on about. When I get into the examples, I'm sure you're going to catch the reality of it. Sacrifice and mercy. They are organizing words. Through them, we can understand our attitudes and our language. Let's briefly treat these before we get into the examples so you can see the bigger impact more immediately. Sacrifice. Sacrifice is the language of transactional payoff. It's the language of alleviating my guilt. An example is, what do I need to do? I'll do anything. Ever been in a relationship where things begin to go wrong? And maybe that person might say to you, that's it, that's the end of the relationship, I'm done. And within a moment, you start to realize what you're about to lose. And you're like, I'll do anything, I'll do anything. Do you need me to iron your shirt? Do you need me to pick you up from work? Do you need me to prepare you lunch? What do you need me to do? I'll do anything. I'll change, I'll change. And in that context, there's this kind of understanding of you need to pay. In order to get back into my good books, you need to pay. That's the language of sacrifice. And then there's the language of mercy. Mercy is the language, contains the language of a surrendered heart exchange. The example is what can I or what could you become? Not I will do anything, but I need God's grace to change. Not you need to pay, but you can be better than this. That's an odd juxtaposition to say that mercy and sacrifice are polar opposites because mercy is sacrificial. Mercy requires that you pay a price that is more substantial than the sacrifice you might previously have made. But really, we have to understand mercy in the bigger context, and that is God's mercy. Whatever God, mercy God asks us to show, it's because in some way He has made provision for us to be merciful because he has borne the ultimate cost. So if we were to talk about sacrifice, 
God has made the ultimate sacrifice, and we'll come back to touch on that a little bit later. But really, this lesson, this difference between mercy and sacrifice is the difference between head and heart. Who you are is more important than what you give. Who you, what you, who you are is more important than what you do. And if we were to follow this to its conclusion, understanding mercy for what it really is, is coming to understand that God is in charge and not us. And I'm going to repeat that a few times for us at appropriate points. God is in charge and not us. Where do we make sacrifices? What would mercy look like? Let's start with some easy examples. But this is going to get pretty challenging. The first, what about the physical appearance? I've never been overtly conscious about clothing and brands. It happens that people wear me nice, buy me nice jackets for Christmas. I wear those jackets for three, four, five, six years. People keep saying to me, like your jacket. Yeah, it's 10 years old. But you know, it's, it's because other people have bought me the clothes and I like wearing them, okay? But I've never been conscious of, I need to be wearing this, that, the other brand. If you see me uh, Monday to Saturday as the Bible school students, I'm just wearing like a five pound polo t-shirt that I bought from Marks and Spencer's in the sale kind of vibe. Not conscious about fashion. But there are some people that are incredibly conscious about fashion. And are willing to make the sacrifice in order to appear as they are supposed to appear. I have some wonderful friends, when I hear how much they spent on a dress or on a suit, I'm like, what? Really? You spent that much on a dress? But how about watches? I mean, there's some people out there with watches that are flash. There's gold and there's diamonds and there's all sorts of amazing things going on, or handbags that cost a thousand pounds and so on. But all of that, this is the low grade, this is the entry level, okay? All of that is about sacrificing to conform to the image that the world desires for you to hold to. There's nothing wrong with having good stuff, but if there's pressure on you to have it in order to appear a certain way, that's sacrifice. And that's a sacrifice that some people are willing to make. So that's physical, okay? Second area of sacrifice is professional busyness. Busyness. In the world in which we live, particularly London, too stressed to rest, there is an entire social order built around busyness with the promise that we are to sacrifice for a future that we will never see. If you work really hard now, you can make as much money as is possible, you can climb the ladder as quickly as possible, you can make as much opportunity for yourself right now so that in the future you will have yet more opportunity and yet more opportunity and yet more opportunity. But the sacrifice you need to make, uh, normally as first family, either never get married, or wait till you're 40 to get married, or wait till your late 30s to get married in exchange for career. Or if you do have family, to work all the hours that God sends in order to provide for the family, for a future with the family, that when you get to that future, you no longer have. And this is the issue of sacrifice. 
And so we start to pay the price for things that we never get. We pay the price for this dream future, and yet the cost is the family that we're supposed to be providing for. By the time you get to kids age 10 or age 15, you're facing divorce. They're thinking, well, I never saw you for the whole of my life, and now you're going to be living on the other side of the city or in a different country. The nature of sacrifice. When you put together the issue of fashion and then this issue of busyness, you start to see that we live in a world, a culture, a system, which is designed around sacrifice. And the third one, this is a deep one. I need grace and mercy while I'm talking about this because I want to pitch it right for you today. We talked about the area of the physical. We talked about the area of professional. I want to talk to you about the area of sexual. And I want to talk to you about the issue of the Me Too campaign. What is Me Too? If any of you are on social media, you will have seen over the last number of months, sparked by a number of different issues, the Harvey Weinstein uh, uh, circumstances, all that surrounds that, other areas of abuse and sexual abuse, and then the whole history that we have in a nation of paedophilia and so on. And the more that people have begun to speak out about the issues they have, uh, we notice that this is actually a major problem right across the nation. And it's grieving, it's, it's horrific, because the present reality of the world we live in is that four in five of you ladies who are sitting in the room here today will have experienced sexual harassment or abuse of some form. Surprisingly, one in two men will have experienced the same, as we saw with the whole recent issue with the football coach. These statistics point to a problem that is being experienced every single day, and many people in the room will have also experienced the more grievous levels of these rape and so on. Any violation of the person is wrong. Any violation of the person is wrong. And it leaves someone in a place where they have a long road to recovery. And everyone also has participated in some form as a perpetrator in some way, buying into the little actions that build a rape culture. And there's a, a need for the church to start to speak up and to talk about these issues in a way which challenges change. I think it begins with all of us determining in our heart that the right way forward is God's way. And that's a very difficult thing to say in a culture like we live in today. But the way that I would position that for us today in, the, in a way that we might more readily accept is that we each determine that we will only receive that which is given in a context of covenant commitment from somebody else. We will each receive that which is given in a context of covenant commitment. That's different to taking, forcing, not accepting no. Thinking yes means more than it does. It means receiving that which is given when you have committed yourself 100%. That's the marriage covenant that God has called us to. So I'm, there's much for us to be grieved about. There's also much for us to be pleased about, that people are starting to talk out. They've got courage to start to share about the issues that they're facing. 
And we want to create an environment where it's possible for people to share the challenges that they face. Because I know that not only are people in here who have experienced these issues, out in the world, there are people sitting here who have experienced these issues from people in the church. And we need to make it okay to confront and challenge these issues and move forward towards a higher call of holiness. So if you've started that journey or if you're thinking about starting that journey, we want to encourage you to do that. No, it'd be difficult, but it's the start of a journey towards your freedom. But this is where we start to hit the issue. This is where I'm worried. And this is why I'm bringing this issue into the context that I'm talking about is that the way things are going now, we are building a whole infrastructure of sacrifice in relation to the Me Too campaign and all of the abuse that's happened under that campaign. First, it was the price of guilt. Those that have perpetrated these actions were buying silence, non-disclosure agreements and so on. That was the price they were willing to pay. Now we find ourselves in a different situation where people are paying with a price of punishment, reputation, career, finances, and so on. And in some way, you would be right to say, serves you right. Those who have been abused are living with a life sentence of abuse. So those who've perpetrated the abuse should suffer a life sentence for their actions. And that's the price we expect them to pay. So there's the price they're willing to pay, then the price that we expect them to pay. But this is the bigger question. What of the price that God has paid? And the opportunity he gives us to imitate him. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, uh, not to call the righteous, but sinners. Some say, if there's a God in heaven, how much, how can he allow such injustice to happen in the world? They rage against the injustices that are all around us. And yet the issue is, if God in heaven decided to act upon the injustice, every single one of us would be obliterated right now as though Armageddon had happened as though every nuclear bomb in the world had gone off at the same time, all of us would be gone if God acted in justice for what we deserve. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the right, not, not to call the righteous, but sinners. I realize that me starting off on this line is incredibly difficult, requires incredible sensitivity. I hope in some way that I'm communicating that. If you've been a victim and you've been involved in abuse, but the thing that Jesus points us to is if you're a victim, will justice now, in the form that we're seeing demonstrated by the world, will that justice now give you the peace that you're looking for? If you're a perpetrator, what route do, to repentance do you have? You're hiding because of the price you know you're going to pay when the world finds out. 
These two issues, when you put them together, show us that we're operating in a sacrificial system. A sacrificial system. And I'm not talking about some cheap grace where Jesus just says, hey, you need to forgive, you need to forgive, you need to forgive. Because the whole framework of Christianity is built on the understanding that Jesus paid the ultimate price, giving his life not just for one or two or three or four people who were kind of not so bad, but giving his life for the billions of people that have wronged and affronted God. And he calls us to something. He calls us to a different way of life. He calls us to mercy. Because mercy is knowing that God is in charge. And ultimately, God will judge all things. Jesus talks about God's judgment in such a way that it's terrifying. The wrath of God poured out against sin is terrifying. He says of those that lead little children astray, it would be better for them that a millstone be hung around their neck and they'd be dropped over the side of a boat than to face the wrath of God because it's concerning their sin. So we know that God is going to judge fairly. But if we were to move forward, what kind of a life is God calling us to? He's calling us to a life where we step out of the sacrificial system into a new system. Rather than a system of exchange, an exchange of systems. If we believe that we operate out of a sacrificial system, it's no wonder that we are too stressed to rest. I know that that was um, a very difficult place for us to go to in the context of a 2.30 service. I'm aware of that. I believe that we need to talk about these issues more and there might be different contexts in which we can do so. But I wanted to bring the real challenging, incredibly difficult reality of the world that we live in into the context of what Jesus is talking about when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's not saying it to some nice holy people, to a next group of people who just aren't so bad. He's talking with divine knowledge of the reality of the sinful world in which we live and the motivations which govern every single one of us until we come to this place of revelation. So now I want to talk a little bit about the issue of rest. And I'm not just talking about here how we can make a little bit more room for us to relax. You know, sometimes when we talk about rest in the the context of church, it can just come across like, you know, you need to create a 24-hour period of Sabbath where you, you give time to God and you just chill out, you know, you look after yourself. But it's much deeper than that. It's about totally exiting the sacrificial system and entering into the kingdom of God and the way God calls us to live. So what does that look like? Well, there's a difference between rest and rest. There's a difference between relaxing and knowing that we are held up in the kingdom of God. There's a difference between looking after ourselves and God looking after us. And it builds out of a heart issue. Now, I've been wrestling with something personally in my life, and that's a a bad habit that I've created. I think all of us have this bad habit. It's when I get home, I walk into the lounge, and there's the sofa. You know, my head has carved out a special place on that sofa where I just lie down, so much so that all the cushions have collapsed around the position that I'll take in that sofa. Rebecca's like, you need to buy new cushions now, Gabriel. You've ruined the sofa. Okay, but I can't wait to get to the sofa. I get home, like, kids okay? Sweetheart, need anything? Dinner okay? Anything else I can do? Okay, sofa. And I'm relaxing there in the sofa. Now, there's a sofa and there's a spirit. 
When I hit that sofa, I am sometimes not thinking about, well, most of the time, not thinking about anything except looking after myself and relaxing. Certainly not thinking about God and praying. I look forward to the sofa. But there's a call upon all of our lives to start to look forward to the wooden chair. The place where we sit with God. The place where we make ourselves uncomfortable in order to be comfortable in God's presence. The place where we resist the temptation of relaxation, just looking after ourselves, to intentionally seeking after God, intentionally pursuing the revelation of who God is. And this is the difference. We might be in an incredibly difficult position, uncomfortable position, but we're at rest in and with God. Or say it a different way, the rest that Jesus offers us is a deep belief that God, in establishing a new system, the kingdom of God, has brought you into such a place of security in life. And many of us are on a journey to discover that, what it really is. But such security that whatever is going on around us, we're at peace with God. Whatever anxiety the situation or circumstance of our life is throwing at us, we are at peace with God. And that comes out of this knowledge that Jesus is greater than the law. Let's explore and push a little bit further. I know this is a particular issue for men. Ladies, I hope that it's also an issue for you. Otherwise, I need to spend more time talking to Rebecca about what issues are. But guys face this real challenge with busyness. We seek to fill up as much time as is possible with stuff to do whether it's at work, whether it's with projects at home, whether it's with looking after family or spending time with friends and so on. Now, guys, I will, I'll, if I were to ask you how much time you spend on your own without doing additional projects and so on and without sleeping, I bet in the room we could point to 15 minutes or less. All right? 15 minutes or less of just doing nothing except perhaps being with God, but none of the other projects. Why do we keep ourselves so busy? Why? It's a serious question. It's a serious question I'm asking myself. Because if the Lord is calling me to moments when I can enter into his rest, I know that there's an eschatological principle there and times, but there's a now resting in the presence of God. If God is calling me into his rest, why am I filling up my time with stuff that doesn't matter? Because in the context of God, not everything matters. Why? And I think it's because if, when I stop and I reflect, I've come to a dangerous place for me. And this might be a dangerous place for you. Is that I've come to define who I am by what I do, not by who I am. And so I'm more comfortable when I'm filling up my time doing stuff than I am spending my time just being. So I don't like to do nothing. I don't enjoy doing nothing because I want to be doing because that's where I get a sense of self-worth and value. Ladies, if there's some way that you can map that onto the challenges and experiences that you're having, please do so. But the point I'm trying to make is that we can so often get caught up in this doing and not being or sacrificing versus mercy that we miss out on what God has for us. We're called to make room for God. 
Making room for God, not just so that we can say we've made room for God, making room for God so that we can come to a deeper revelation of what this new kingdom is all about. Some of us treat our relationship with God like pret, when we should be treating it like a nice T-bone steak that you eat over two hours. Jamal, you got me? You know what I'm saying? Big meal where you sit down and you extract all the nourishment from the meal rather than 30 seconds in and out, got the sandwich, eat on the tube, done, next thing. I'll say it a different way. I'm loving spending time with my son Isaiah right now. He's two months old. Um, He's at that stage where he can just hang his arms by his side and curl in. Like for any, like Luke, Luke will not hang his arms by his side. He's like, always ready to go. But Isaiah is chilled. And so I'll pick him up most nights and set him here. And he'd be, I had a photo, I should have put it up. But just cuddling in here, lovely. And his little chin resting on my shoulder, his arms hanging down. He's been doing it so much these last two months that it's almost like I've got a little hole (laughs) right here in my shoulder. A chin groove. God should have a chin groove from every single one of us. God should have an impact upon him from the time that we spend in relationship with him. Desiring mercy, not sacrifice, is a lesson that we need to learn in order to enter into a deeper knowledge, deeper knowledge that God is in charge, not us. And the ultimate end of knowing that God is in charge and not us is this place of rest. Jesus said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the day of rest. Actually, you could probably say that Jesus is Lord of all of your places of rest. Maybe the rest that you need is healing. Maybe the rest that you need is peace. Maybe the rest that you need is restoration. Maybe the rest that you need is to trust somebody. Maybe the rest that you need is salvation. Jesus is Lord of all of those places of rest. Or say it a different way. If you want to know who owns the house where you can have the biggest relaxation in each one of those areas, if you want to know what the ultimate experience of healing is, the ultimate experience of salvation, and you were to go to a house to find it, you'd find that Jesus was the owner of that house. I'll say it a different way. The peace that you look for cannot be found anywhere else. You can't negotiate with the devil. You can't negotiate with the world because the moment you start to negotiate with the world or the devil, you're back in the sacrificial system, the place of exchange. For you to get peace, you need to do this. For you to have a great future, you need to give me all of the hours work you can possibly give. For you to be happy in your marriage, you need to give control to the other person. No, that's the world and the flesh. But Jesus is Lord of the places of peace. If you want to live and operate out of unconditional love, you need to come to Jesus because he's the one that empowers us to love unconditionally. If you want to walk in healing, you need to come to Christ because he's the one who gives it freely, without charge. Please, just as a church, let me say this to you. If you are sick, do not, categorically do not, listen to anybody at all who tells you if you give 
a certain amount of money, or if you pay me a certain amount of money, I can heal you. People do this because of the desperation to need healing and desire for healing. You go to a cult because they promise you they'll heal you. You go to a healer, thousand pounds, I can heal you. Jesus' gift of healing, totally free, no cost. It's not the sacrificial system. Please do not fall into that deception. Because what happens? You give and you give and you give for a future that never ever comes into existence. You get the point. Sacrifice. Kingdom. And what do we lose by not resting? I want to suggest to you that you lose every opportunity for the supernatural. If you just focus on living life in your power, in your capacities, your abilities, you lose every opportunity to see God do something incredible through you. Oh no, but I'm needed. If I don't do this, no one else is going to do it. Really? Is the world going to fall apart just because you stop holding up your end? No, it's going to keep going. Ever taken a time on holiday, come back and found that your workplace was still running? It's not like they built the memorial and, oh my God, everything's fallen apart. Rest. Third, fruit. Treat this shortly. What flows out of rest? Or the knowledge that God is in charge. Fruit that far outstrips anything that you can do by yourself. First, let's start with the idea. I said to you at the beginning that sacrifice and mercy are two organizing words. They help us understand which system we're living in, the sacrificial system or the kingdom of God. But they also affect our perspective on the world. Jesus, as I've said to you a few times, said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When we understand mercy in its right context, we start to see that every single person that is broken by sin is an opportunity for the kingdom of God to break in. The most difficult person you know in your life is an opportunity for the glory of God to break in. In the sacrificial system, you'd say, that person, look how much they've messed up so far. Their whole life is just going to be a mess. Write them off. In the kingdom of God, he's really difficult. I really struggle with you. I really find these aspects of your personality really grating. And the way that you treat people, just intolerable. But I know that the kingdom of God can change you. I know that God loves you. I know that he can meet with you right where you're at. That's a difference that's brought about by mercy. If we're to be a people that see healing and see suffering turned right and see justice brought about, we need that fundamental shift to happen for us. If we keep perpetrating the sacrificial system, which religion does, if we keep perpetrating that, we're not going to see the kingdom. The kingdom comes when mercy is our frame of reference. But then what do we see beyond that? We start to see a church fruitful. When you're resting in this new way of seeing things, this new system, this kingdom of God, seeking first the kingdom of God, that's the way that Jesus puts it. When we live from that, what begins to happen? Salvation begins to happen through your life. You share the gospel with people, they get saved. You pray for the sick, they get healed. You pray for impossible situations and God breaks in because God manifests his kingdom through those who actually believe his kingdom, who actually believe that we're living in a totally different world. And this is the challenge for us. In this season of God calling us as a church, as a people to be a people of revival or new life or fruit bearing, we need to learn the lesson. 
We need to understand that we're of a totally different system. We're of the kingdom of God, not the sacrificial system of the world. And why can we say all of this? And I bring this to a close with this. The end of the sacrificial system came with Jesus Christ upon the cross. That's where the old world ended and the new world started to come about. How? Jesus said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath. That means supreme ruler. It means the highest one in any context. He became Lord over this new kingdom that is being brought in by bringing sin into submission. He lived a righteous life. He never sinned before God. He came, went to the cross to die upon the cross to atone for God's wrath. He was made sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He took the entire wrath of God upon his body, himself. He became the ultimate sacrifice so that all of us could become the benefits of ultimate exchange. His death for your death, his life for your life, his curse so that you might be blessed, his gift so that we might enjoy relationship with God. Where we were previously promised eternal death, we are now promised eternal life, which is to know God. Everything happened at the cross for us. Everything happened at that place where Jesus died for you. And if we were to cry out to God for this city that is sin-laden, I've only scratched the very tiniest scratch of the surface, even with the things that I have touched on, about how sinful this city is. But we believe that this city can and will be turned by the grace of God, but it comes with the coming kingdom. 